0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Immigration Matters, Movements, Visions, and Strategies for a Progressive Future, edited by Ruth Milkman, Deepak Bargava, and Penny Lewis. The Biden administration rescinded Trump's executive orders and sent immigration reform legislation to Congress on day one, signaling that immigration will be a governing priority. Featuring essays by many of the country's leading immigration scholars and activists, Immigration Matters offers a blueprint for a just path forward. This upcoming Friday, February 26th at 1 p.m. EST, four contributors to the book, including U.S. Representative Pramila Jayapal, will join Community Change Action President Lorella Prahali to reflect on the lessons of past campaigns and outline provocative new paradigms for this crucial debate. Register at communitychange.org immigration hyphen matters. Immigration Matters, edited by Ruth Milkman, Deepak Bargava, and Penny Lewis. Coming soon from the new press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What happened to conservative intellectuals? By 2020, many found themselves with zero support among a right-wing base that despises them. Yet others, paleocons, West Coast Straussians, found in our smooth-brained former president a champion for their long-held ideas. My guests today are Sam Adler-Bell and Matt Sitman, the hosts of Know Your Enemy, a wonderful podcast about the American right that I listen to religiously. This episode is a wide-ranging, lengthy discussion on the history of American conservative intellectuals and where things sit now, now that the American right has become an almost wholly-owned subsidiary of Donald Trump. Before we get rolling, this podcast only exists because those of you who can afford to make a contribution do so at patreon.com slash thedig we do not pay well anything because we want everyone to be able to listen to everything we put out, regardless of your ability to pay. That means, though, that we need those of you who can afford to contribute to do so. As a thank you, if you contribute $10 or more a month, we have left-wing books to send you as a thank you. For larger donations, we are about to receive a shipment, finally, of mugs and tote bags. If you have not done so yet, please take a moment to contribute at patreon.com slash the dig that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig also some event announcements sunday march 21st at 2 p.m eastern filmmakers astra taylor and eric Stoll will discuss their recent film you are not alone with dig listeners over zoom it's a 45-minute film available for free on the Intercept website, and I will link to that in the show notes. It's a record of a February 2020 conversation between activists and academics about student loan debt cancellation and free college and university tuition. You can watch You Are Not Alone in advance and then join our DIG film club for a discussion and Q&A with the filmmakers. Also, our next DIG book club is Paolo Gerbalo's book, The Digital Party. Political organization and online democracy. If you'd like to meet Astra and Eric, and also Paolo, join the Dig Book Club to get the Zoom details. Sign up at thedigradio.com/dig-book-club. I will put that link and a link to the documentary "You Are Not Alone" in the show notes. Okay, here we go. Sam Adler-Bell is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in The Intercept, Common Wheel, The New Republic, In These Times, Jacobin, and elsewhere. Matt Sitman is associate editor of Common Wheel magazine and writes regularly for Dissent, where he also serves on the editorial board. The two are co-hosts of Know Your Enemy, a podcast about the American right, sponsored by Dissent. Sam Adler-Bell, and Matt Sitman. Welcome to The Dig.
1: Hi, Dan. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for having us. The Hoover Institute's Lan He Chen recently told The New York Times after Trump's acquittal, quote, When the Republican Party have been successful, it's been as a party of ideas. Many Republicans are more focused on talking about him rather than about what's next. And that's a very dangerous place to be. I thought that quote was fascinating because there's this standard story about the rise of the modern conservative movement, and it's an extremely intellectual-centric one that goes something like this. William F. Buckley founded the National Review. He fused these various strands of the right, religious conservatives, anti-communist militarists, free marketeers. He brought them all together. He purged the Bercher and anti-Semitic lunatic fringe, and then they went on to win the nomination with Goldwater in 64 and then won everything with Reagan in 1980. What is true about this narrative? And what is wrong about it? And what does that wrongness obscure?
1: That question is a preoccupation of our show. um, Because to be honest, Matt and I are both eggheads who like reading ideas. So we read a lot on the right. And it can be really interesting and exciting to do that. And you always have to sort of check yourself about whether what's being said is as important as the actual sort of social and cultural and material forces that are cohering this movement at any given historical moment. When we started our podcast, we were definitely inspired to some degree by Corey Robbins' work on the right and sort of his thesis, which is, you know, something like, you know, conservatism consists of the intellectual articulation of, you know, the experience of having power, feeling it threatened, and 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 fighting against mass movements of the left to democratize politics and break down social and political and economic hierarchies. Um, and so that the ideas are always in service of protecting those hierarchies. I think for me, I, I, I basically agree with Robin. And I think that people have misunderstood him as suggesting that the ideas don't matter. I think that the ideas do matter because they're often a very sophisticated response to the discursive needs of a particular historical moment and uh, protecting those hierarchies is maybe the motivating impulse behind these ideas but nonetheless reading them does give you a sense of what what, what were the threats to those hierarchies at a particular moment and and why did they require this particular set of ideas um, I mean it's sort of like a vulgar Marxist analysis to some degree, you know, reading intellectual history as a, as a Marxist of some sort is understanding what material needs the ruling order felt needed to be protected. And then the ideas that arise from that necessity are the ones that we read on the right. Matt? Well, I think the story that you cited, I wanted to read here. There's a great quote
2: from George Will. He wrote it in National Review in 1980. And he said this, all great biblical stories begin with Genesis. And then he kind of compares that to the conservative movement. And he said, and before there was Ronald Reagan, there was Barry Goldwater. And before there was Barry Goldwater, there was National Review. And before there was National Review, there was Bill Buckley with a spark in his mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the spark in 1980 has become a conflagration. So the story you recited is basically the story conservatives tell about themselves. And there's an element of truth to it in the sense that Bill Buckley did found National Review. (laughs) Uh, Barry Goldwater did run for president and lose, but in the process, seemed to change the Republican Party and give movement conservatives a foothold in electoral politics. And then in 1980, Bill Buckley's friend, Ronald Reagan, did in fact win a massive uh, election victory over Jimmy Carter. That's all true. And I think part of the reason for that is one of the very first books written about conservative politics and ideas that really had, I think, academic standing and was written by a real historian, is George H. Nash's book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, um, 1945 to, well, whatever the edition you're reading, you know, the the date kind of expands in later editions. Um, And that was the story he told. It was very focused on national review. It was very focused on the intellectual side of things, the ideas and the institutions and magazines and publications that help spread those ideas. And I think it's just taken historians and others a kind of longer time to really sort out what was going on in those decades between the founding of National Review and kind of America's right turn politically.
0: What about that comment from Chen recently that the problem with the Republican Party now as a Trumpist party is that it is no longer a party of ideas and what was most significant about conservatism prior to Trump was that it was just full of ideas and ideas directed, what kind of function does that just-so story play on the right? And also, I would add, for those outside of the right, and there are many of them who are committed to the idea that there was this respectable and thoughtful right that Trump represents this decisive break from.
2: Well, I think there's a couple things I would say in response to that. One is the story that the right tells about themselves is self-exonerating. Because part of that story is that when Bill Buckley founded National Review and convened debates about what the nature of American conservatism in that moment could be and should be. You know, part of that tale is that along the way he weeded out the John Birchers. He weeded out Ayn Rand. Later on, he fired Joe Sobrin, uh, a, a Catholic writer who really crossed the line in terms of anti-Semitism. So Buckley becomes the gatekeeper that kind of purifies conservatism, again kicking out the the more unruly conspiratorial or just dangerous ideas and so that was that's part of that story that those elements were weeded out and then a pure kind of vibrant intellectual conservatism eventually won over the country through the vehicle of Ronald Reagan Um, and I think what that tends to miss is that so many of the ideas the conservatives put forward in a like phenomenological sense they did put forward new ideas like supply side economics was at the time it might have had older origins but the packaging and formulation felt fresh and when the heritage foundation handed Ronald Reagan a mandate for leadership which was this like 1200 page document filled with policy su- suggestions at every level of the federal government you know those were i policy ideas they felt like there was a lot happening but really they just were dressing up i think a lot of longstanding impulses on the right. And in someone like Reagan, they found the ideal pitch man to present those ideas. And because of the institutions and magazines and ideas that had been kind of supported on the right, it felt there was this apparatus, this, this set of interlocking institutions and ideas and thinkers that kind of presented what this new conservatism was in a way that did feel fresh. The critical angle we bring to the right on Know Your Enemy, our podcast it is it is capable of acknowledging the effectiveness of the right and the strategic decisions they made that actually were very useful and effective. But I think the idea that the right, that the Republican Party is most themselves and most effective as a party of ideas, I'm just not sure that's true because I'm not sure anyone voted for Ronald Reagan because they, you know, or very few people did because they read National Review and believed that like fusionism was a, Coherent governing philosophy. I, you know, I think that tale, it's again, it's the, the story they tell about themselves where ideas are most prominent, the ideas won people over, and then the politics followed. And I think that might have some of the causation reversed. But it's, you know, on the right, one of the big books that really made an impact early in the conservative movement was one by Richard Weaver called Ideas Have Consequences. And they kind of love that formulation. Ideas have consequences, and the ideas in National Review had consequences that changed the United States and thus the world. Sam,
1: well, yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think Matt's point that a lot of that "just so" story is a way of sanitizing um, and sanding off the rougher edges of the conservative movement and what you know really might have motivated certain people to participate in certain, certainly certain voting blocks, and I think. What's interesting is that it's not even really completely true on its own terms. Like it's not true that the ideas that were permitted to be published in National Review were never basically rank white supremacy. You know, Buckley himself in 1957 defended uh segregation in the South. Um he later reversed that position, but he he wrote at the time The central question that emerges is whether the white community in the South is entitled to take such measures as are necessary to prevail politically and culturally in areas in which it does not predominate numerically. The sobering answer is yes, the white community is so entitled because for the time being, it is the advanced race. So, you know, Buckley didn't
0: kick himself off uh, (laughs) the (laughs) masthead. Somehow he escaped his his purges of the right-wing fanatics.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so, and and it's true that, you know, there was a a mutable thing what uh, constituted acceptable conservatism. You know, even just Buckley's preoccupation with that gatekeeping, um, the the guardrails on what counts as conservatism the fixation on it both in the history that the right tells about itself and in the way that Buckley approached it and talked about it it's kind of a little bit of protesting too much i mean you know that they knew that on some level they had these rough edges and they and there were people being attracted to their politics for much less patrician high-minded reasons and that's what required this sometimes true, sometimes false narrative about Buckley as, you know, kicking out the, the bad eggs.
0: Well, it was it, it's remarkable that it wasn't just this one moment of kicking out the ba- bad eggs, but that people have had to repeatedly over the years <laughs> leave the masthead because they were just so committed to expressing white racism in particular in such brazenly, such brazen and unapologetic terms, which as you say, Sam, is saying a lot given what you're allowed to say within the pages of the National Review. There's obviously... Buckley's infamous defense of Jim Crow, but also Peter Brimlow's 1992 cover story on immigration, which called, quote, so-called Hispanics, a, quote, strange anti-nation within the U.S. That article goes on to become the best-selling book, Alien Nation, which then influences Ann Coulter. She says that book turned her on to, or maybe that article, I believe, turned her on to nativist politics, and then Coulter's anti-immigrant polemics have a major influence On Trump, so there's a really direct line there from the National Review to Trump on immigration, and I found an article just from 2004 where Buckley was praising the novel "The Camp of the Saints," a far-right nativist fever dream about what would today be called the Great Replacement. Yes, and beloved by
1: um, what's his name, Rod Dreher. Oh yeah, Rod Dreher and... Uh, oh, we'll um. be talking Dreher.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, no, we well, can bring him up whenever.
1: <laughs> or he he at
2: least cited that book a lot and, on his blog, but also Jeffrey and, Hart. And Bannon, Bannon, Bannon right? Bannon, yes. Um, but Jeffrey Hart, who, to kind of flesh out some of these connections, I believe he reviewed Camp of the Saints for National Review when it uh, was published in English, I want to say in like the late 70s. Yeah, I think uh, so. If that sounds right. And of course it was a very favorable review But Jeffrey Hart was a longtime Dartmouth professor, so he was kind of the conservative on faculty that shepherded people like Laura Ingram and Dinesh D'Souza when they were at Dartmouth. You know, Dartmouth was kind of a hotbed of campus conservatism. And Jeffrey Hart, this key player in National Review's history, he actually wrote a memoir of his time, uh, you know, working for National Review and his travels on the right. He was praising Camp of the Saints, too. And I think one thing this gets at, occasionally you see this overlap between the impulses of the conservative base and what happens in the magazines uh, at the level of ideas. And like it, the, the Brimelow story on immigration is a great example of that. But I think what you really see, and this is reflected in the historiography of conservatism, is the connection between the ideas and the more populist political on the ground impulses can be difficult to Sketch sometimes. And I think there's a persistent tension in the history of American conservatism uh, after World War II between the high level debates happening in the pages of National Review and what was happening on the ground. And, you know, it's not clear to what extent the conservative base really ever bought conservative ideology kind of full all the way. And I think when you get to something like Trump, which I'm sure we'll talk about. You know, as we go along, but I think it's a that's a case of the base kind of outstripping uh, the people who construct the ideas and run the party and run all the institutions on the right. You know, that was it was uh, the the tiger kind of flipping the person riding off its back and mauling it.
0: Yeah, and it makes me wonder what is the relationship then between conservative intellectuals who appeared to be in the driver's seat for so long and this actually existing mass conservative ideology because for a while national review types were standard issue fox news guests does does the fact that they were so effortlessly tossed aside reveal that it was conservative media not the little magazines that were always driving conservative politics
1: i mean the interesting thing is that buckley also you know famously hosted the firing line and really brought this kind of conservative polemical uh television presence uh to the movement like we now look back and say Buckley was the you know serious intellectual um you know writing in the pages of the small magazines whereas people like Rush Limbaugh and then later on you know Fox News opinion side replaced you know this serious intellectual stuff but you know the movement you know, I, I think conservatism adapted to, like, the necessities of uh, different forms of mass communication quite effectively. I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess I wouldn't say that, you know, TV replaced the small magazines because people like Buckley were also instrumental in bringing conservatives to television
0: audiences. Now, that's a very important point, I guess, to ask the question in a broader way. What's the relationship between conservative ideas and conservative ideology, because if we're going to look at conservative, the origin story of conservative ideology, we might look instead to the the political subjectivities that are made by imperialist wars, racialized patterns of suburbanization and segregation, mass deportation, mass incarceration, things like that, and not necessarily to how those ideas are articulated, or maybe to both in some way that the two interact with one another. I'm not sure.
2: Well, maybe a point to make now is just that while we can tease out say Buckley in the pages of National Review and his very highbrow show on PBS. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but it begins with like classical music playing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and Buckley leaning back in his uh jacket, kind of frumpy jacket and tie, you know, pencil in his mouth. Uh and then, you know, the guests are real intellectuals often, so people like Noam Chomsky or James Baldwin or um Famously, James Baldwin. famously, yeah, you know, uh, you know, so it was a, it was pitched as a highbrow show, and, and in many ways it was. But you also have National Review giving awards to Rush Limbaugh, and Bill Buckley saying he likes listening to Limbaugh and that Limbaugh is important. And so I really do think there was this uh, maybe in its early days, the intellectuals at National Review felt that they were really you know, a small band of dissidents. But as it goes along, I mean, just the, the, there's a real breakdown between the more popular expressions of conservatism and the more highbrow expressions of it. And they kind of, you know, merge into one another, or at least the highbrow people like Buckley will give Limbaugh their, um, you know, stamp of approval. And Ann Coulter wrote for National Review. Dinesh D'Souza, his name might still be on the masthead. They might have removed it more recently, for but for <laughs> the longest time, his name was on the masthead. So it's we can identify these distinctions but often in practice the right is just very good at working together for power and i i know that sounds very simplistic to put it that way i don't mean to sound childish when i say that but it's having a common enemy and maybe we can break down some of what was going on in the pages of national review a bit more before we move along because having a common enemy especially the soviet union really helped conservatives coalesce. And I think the way they talk about liberalism now and, you know, the the socialists and the squad, like they're really good at identifying an enemy and then getting everyone who also perceives that as an enemy to somehow work together, at least practically.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good call. Let's pause for a moment and explain what this fusion was that Buckley accomplished with the National Review, what sort of various currents of conservatism he tied together and, and, and how how he did it. You know, I'm fascinated
1: by this fusionism as kind of this strategy for cohering these competing tendencies, these sort of inchoate conservative ideas and impulses in American life prior to the founding of National Review in the post-war period, because really you had... Um, Two really main tendencies: one being sort of the traditionalist conservatism of you know that was that was articulated most eloquently in uh, Russell Kirk's book, *The Conservative Mind*, and then you had a more libertarian, uh, classical liberal tradition, which uh, was beginning to be articulated by people like Friedrich Hayek, earlier sort of libertarians like Frank Chodorov and Albert J. Nock. Murray Rothbard was one of libertarian, um, Frank Meyer, who ends up playing. So the the, the neoliberals in that case. Yes, yeah, Liber- libertarians in the sense of being preoccupied primarily with individual liberty, free enterprise, laissez-faire economics, private property, and sort of public reason, um, as sort of put set against the traditionalists who were primarily invested in defending order, consensus, morality, religion, truth, and virtue, and those people were. People prior to this kind of cohering of these ideas in the pages of National Review, people like Wilmar Kendall, Russell Kirk, Eric Vogelin, um, Brent Bozell, who which I know Matt wants to talk about a bit.
0: And the religious right at that time was, if I understand correctly, like more quietist before they were awake, reawakened as part of the modern conservative movement. As a
1: as a like organized political force, I think that's right. Um, but of course, people like Kendall, Kirk, Vogelin, Bozell. I mean, these they were all very religious, and the traditionalists were quite invested in you know religion as the preserver of morality and virtue in in, in American life. And I think the important thing to bring the listeners' attention to there is profound contradictions. There's profound tension between those two tendencies. Like we now think of because we live in some ways in the world that fusionism built, we think of social conservatism and laissez-faire economics as fitting together naturally. But at the time, they they really didn't. And in some ways, in the ideas themselves, they're in, in deep tension, right? Because the traditionalists acknowledge that capitalism, that modernity, that individualism, let loose by liberalism itself, undermines these social bonds that constitute You know, religious, social, and moral life in America. I mean, they were profoundly critical of individualism as such. Um, Here, I'm going to find a quote. So, hold on. Kirk wrote in the Conservative Mind, which came out in 1953. "Quote: Individualism is social atomism. Conservatism is community of spirit." He he suggested that the ideology of individualism quote is a denial that life has any meaning except gratification of the ego. He also wrote in the same book. Quote, as consolidation of economic power progresses, the realm of personal freedom will diminish, whether the masters of the economy are state servants or the servants of private corporations. So in the traditionalist camp, there was a, there was a deep critique of capitalism of industrialization, which was seen as undermining sort of the, the social bonds that constitute social conservatism, the family, the church. And the libertarians, you know, their their preoccupation was with free enterprise, unfettered capitalism. P- people like Hayek, you know, that was their that was completely their fixation. And and there's and there's also obviously like a, a deep contradiction between the idea of liberalism, sort of the tr- tradition of, of 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 rights and of individual liberty and the religious preoccupations of the traditionalists, right? Because if you're someone who's who thinks that basically, like, social and political life needs to be organized in such a way that there are sanctions for heresy, you know, for immoral behavior, then you're going to have problems with liberalism as such, which tries to create a pluralistic society, you know, which uh, is invested in freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And so, I'm only bringing the listeners' attention to this stuff because the project of fusing these camps together was a complicated one, one that doesn't, it it isn't self-evident why it would work. It's one Um, of those
0: things that seems inevitable in retrospect.
1: It's Exactly. And maybe, Matt, you want to take it up with what fusionism actually was and did.
2: Yes. I mean, I think one thing that Sam's pointing at, which is true, is that in some ways, the post-war right really began with their rejection of the New Deal. And the first real blows struck against that were by people like Hayek publishing The Road to Serfdom in 1944. And so the libertarian critique of kind of state planning and a kind of slide towards statism, that was there. And when Buckley started National Review in 1955, you know, the Libertarian camp was in the mix, but you had, as Sam's pointing out, moral traditionalists, people like Russell Kirk, religious conservatives of a of a certain stripe, and you had anti communists, like uh, which can't be underplayed in terms of the founding of National Review. There was a real injection of kind of writerly talent and ideas uh, on the right because of basically fellow travelers, Trotskyists, some kind of people on the you know some kind of position on the left. You know they reacted to kind of Soviet crimes and kind of had Cold War conversions. And they found a new team, so to speak, among the anti-communists at National Review. And so you had- Whitaker
0: Chambers and whatnot. Whitaker
2: Chambers, famously, Max Eastman, John Dos Passos, James Burnham. These are all people in the mix. Frank Meyer, Wilmer
1: Kendall, they were both uh, communists. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so you have all this in the mix at National Review, the libertarians, the moral traditionalists, and the anti-communists. And the question was, could it be anything more than a practical alliance? Was there any real theoretical coherence to it? And the name for that supposed theoretical coherence is fusionism. And the debates really, like Russell Kirk took himself off the masthead of National Review because he thought it was too national, uh, too individualistic. And Frank Meyer wrote kind of a blistering critique of Kirk and his style of conservatism. And so the argument for fusionism uh, kind of through Meyer went something like this. To be virtuous, the precondition is freedom. True virtue is only chosen virtue. And then when you add in the Cold War stuff, that kind of... The Soviet Union was both atheistic and godless and therefore immoral and represented the kind of apogee of state planning and control. And so the Cold War element really, I think, helped provide the glue that held some of these uh, debates together because you could look at the Soviet Union and say, see... True practicing true Christianity, living a virtuous life, you can't do that when the state is cracking down on your religion or oppressive in certain ways. And so the, the same freedom that allows men and women to choose virtuous lives is the same freedom that protects the economy from planning. So Meyer thought that freedom held it together and his famous book on this was called In Defense of Freedom. And uh, there's one thing I wanted to read from it because it's such a, I think this really does get to a problem in conservatism. I think it's a sharp uh, and perceptive point from from Meyer, but this is what he says. And he's talking about the kind of inheritance of tradition, which someone like Kirk and the kind of Burkean strain of conservatism, going back to Edmund Burke, emphasized. Meyer says this. Either the whole historical and social situation in which they find themselves, including the development of collectivism, statism, and intellectual anarchy, is providential, and all prescriptive attitudes, including the orthodox collectivist attitudes of the day, are right and true, in which case there's no justification for their stand in opposition to them, meaning the, the traditionalist conservatives, they would have they have no ground to stand on. He says, or There is a higher sanction than prescription and tradition. There are standards of truth and good by which men must make their ultimate judgment of ideas and institutions, in which case, reason operating against the background of tradition is the faculty upon which they must defend in making that judgment. So, it's a very perceptive critique of traditionalism in that to appeal to tradition at that point in time, in the 1950s, you kind of had to admit that the tradition had already gone wrong. The kind of unreflective reception of the institution's ideas of the day uh, wasn't—you couldn't really critique it unless you had some principle you were standing on. Tradition wasn't enough, and for Meyer, that 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 principle ends up being a well a, a principle defense of freedom as both again the necessary precondition for virtue, and that which allowed for a healthy politics and economics. And so it wasn't again just traditionalists throwing their lot in with libertarians and anti-communists. It was an argument that there was a theoretical coherence to this grab bag of intellectuals and ideas around Buckley and National Review and the debates that played out in its pages. One reason it's so thrilling to kind of study this period of conservative history is that the like the what I just read from Frank Meyer in defense of freedom. He's talking about Hegel and Kant and political philosophy, and they. They kind of made these grand arguments that appealed to big ideas uh, throughout history, big thinkers, important texts, and related them to the day-to-day ongoing politics all around them. And it it was a very kind of heady time, I think, to be a young conservative. And it's partly why I think so many converts were attracted to it. Uh, It felt energetic and it felt alive. And the debates were interesting, even if, as Sam's pointing out, what came to be called fusionism You can read Meyer and say, sure, I get what you're pointing to, but it doesn't change the practical effects of capitalism as an uh, engine of creative destruction that, you know, just is not very conducive to settled traditional patterns of life. They never really resolve that.
1: Right. Yeah. And just because you said um, converts too, I mean, just, I just want to make a note because the listeners of this podcast might have their ears perk up when they hear how many conservatives were former communists. I think uh, there's a lot to be said about (laughs) what about the fellow traveler experience inspired people like uh, Meyer and Burnham and Kendall and others to become conservatives, um, these early movement conservatives. But I mean, one thing just to point to is that, (laughs) as your listeners might be able to sympathize with, the experience of um, sort of... Participating in the Popular Front, or um, you know, being involved in all of the schisms that were taking place amongst leftists, and a lot of these people were Trotskyists, was one which might have led them to believe that there was some. There was it was important to have some kind of shared basis on which to organize collectively, that like sort of sectarian wreckers might be a problem in a a movement that was seeking power in America. They, I think, were sympathetic to, this is the sort of more cynical account, but sympathetic to fusionism as just a way of settling, not settling some of these debates, but creating a platform for those debates to play out that wouldn't result in constant fissures (laughs) and the breaking up of the movement as such.
0: Why was it that this all provoked them to convert to conservatism at the time rather marginal in American intellectual life instead of to Cold War liberalism? Well, for one thing, Dan, uh,
2: someone like James Burnham, he wrote a book called Suicide of the West, and he described liberalism as the ideology of Western suicide. So, partly it was an analysis of liberalism, meaning they just didn't think, even even a more muscular Cold War, so called Cold War liberalism, I think they just thought that deep down, liberalism didn't have the resources within it to really fight the Soviet Union the way they wanted. And they came to a lot of these people around National Review, there were debates, editorial debates, about whether the United States should issue a, a, a nuclear first strike on the Soviet Union, say. Like, while we had a preponderance of uh, military might and our nuclear forces were greater than theirs. They were seriously debating that. And so I think that's the view they came to have of the Soviet Union was truly apocalyptic. The nature of the struggle was apocalyptic and they didn't think liberalism had the resources to 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 fight it. But I would also say um, a lot of these people, they felt like they had the scales kind of ripped from their, fall, fall from their eyes. It was such a jarring experience that I think many of them had then like a religious conversion in response to it of some kind. Someone like Whitaker Chambers became a Christian. And one of the famous books of this period uh, is called The God That Failed. And it's of people who, again, converted away from kind of being a fellow traveler or a communist of some kind. And they treated it as a, a kind of state religion that had blinded them. And then they recognized that, that God had failed and they turned to more traditional resources of, to find meaning and uh, a coherent kind of view of the world. And, and so the, the conservative Catholics at National Review were both ready to fight the Soviet Union with everything they had and provided a kind of alternative to these people who, again, not all of them became religious, but a number of them did and or became sympathetic to religion because they just viewed it as a better alternative in terms of instilling morality in a mass citizenry to what was prevailing in the Soviet Union. Then the God that failed, as it were. Yes. It, yeah. it,
0: it's fascinating that, the, that it's the Cold War anti-communism that sutures these two sides together because it's Cold War anti-communism that underpins the entire post-war Keynesian New Deal liberal order. And it suggests that consistently the liberal order, it's not just the right reacting, to the liberal order or the left, but that the liberal order itself creates some of, or at least co-creates some of the very themes that the right uses to attack liberalism.
1: Yes. Well, I think that's right. I mean, one 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 thing to point to, because uh, Matt mentioned James Burnham uh, having written Suicide of the West, but his, his book that made him famous was published in 1941, which was called Managerial Revolution, What is Happening in the World? Um, and just a year before that, I mean, in, in the 30s, he was a close confidant of Trotsky, one of his closest in America. He was a member of the Socialist Workers Party. I read, the, clo- with...
0: I read the closest in America, maybe. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yes. I'm sure that's right. He sided with Schachman in the split in the late 30s in the, in the Socialist Workers Party, You know, inspired in part by the Nazi-Soviet pact. He ultimately was so disgusted by Stalinism and and what he perceived as the Trotskyist Party's insufficient denunciation of uh, what had happened in the Soviet Union, that he abandoned it altogether. But so much—I mean, he was driven to be so suspicious of planning and the dominance of uh, sort of political elite over the economy um, that Managerial Revolution, which was written just a few years after you know he abandoned the left, uh, nineteen forty-one published, and was 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 influenced primarily you know by still by Marx was a, a book that suggested that there was a consonance between the Soviet planned economy and the New Deal economy as well. So there there were the resources to link New Deal liberalism and communist planning in the early. And our set, because Burnham was one of the five or so people on the original masthead of National Review, and that book was extremely popular. Um, and so the idea was that the, that there had become in the early part of the twentieth century a class of managers, right, who who drive, who have a drive for social dominance, for power and privilege, and for the position of the ruling class, who manage the economy, um, and that the unfreedom. Of 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 the Soviet Union was all that there, the same sort of unfreedom was a threat in America because of New Deal liberalism.
2: Yes, and that's amplified then by Hayek, as we mentioned earlier in 1944, the road to serfdom. I mean, the road to serfdom is the road to England and the United States becoming something like the Soviet Union, right? So it's it's that continuity that some of these people posited between what was happening in the United States with the New Deal and the news you know the welfare state social spending et cetera, with what was happening abroad in the soviet union that continuity they pointed to was such a key part of the argument as sam's getting to because when you're talking about why that glue held the different factions of conservatism together it's you can see how if you're a religious conservative the soviet union is like atheism on the march if you're an economic libertarian the soviet union represents your nightmare of state planning and and so that that enemy had something to offer all elements of the conservative
1: coalition that was uh, coming into being. The, the contradictions within fusionism that I tried to point to, I, I think they remain, but I think that Matt, Matt said that fusionism was, uh, or that anti-communism was the glue that held these parts together. Nash, in his famous history, called anti-communism the cement. I think that a shared enemy becomes so important to conservative politics from the very beginning, And anti-communism is the way that it's expressed initially, but then anti-communism provides cover for uh, politics that is opposed to the civil rights movement and other social movements in general.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the contradictions of fusionism become ever more obvious, particularly the free market degrading the very nuclear family that the traditionalists prize. It just becomes more and more obvious over the years, but in the only way to respond to it is either to take a more Trumpist turn, which we're going to get into more in a minute, or to do what what Charles Murray did, which is to create a whole theory of how that's because of that white working class people are following black working class people and getting married less and less and less because of some sort of moral failing, even though the actual causal factor is just so obviously clear. Yeah. One more question on, on this before we get into Trump as intellectuals. How does this first generation of left-to-right converts of, I guess, the 40s and 50s, how do they compare to the, the neoconservative left-to-right converts who follow them beginning in the 60s? It is a good question. One of the
2: books on neoconservatism that I've been reading lately, uh, it had been recommended to me, and I finally picked it up. It's by Justin Vase, V-A-I-S-S-E, and it's called Neoconservatism, the Biography of of a movement, and you know the first wave of neoconservatives really is later on uh, in the '60s. So some of these converts are just—you can lump a bunch of them together and kind of see that they were you know people on the left who moved right, especially as say Stalin's crimes
0: became better known and. You know, certain... And as the new left just starts to piss them off and black people start to yeah. piss them off.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. That's, oh, sorry. That's, sorry. I was yeah. ahead. That's the key yeah, to the yeah. neoconservative. No, no. So but, some of yeah. these early converts like James Burnham, I'm not sure, you know, what kind of movement you would associate with them. They might be kind of forerunners of neoconservatism in a way. But really then it's in the sixties and seventies that you get the first uh, wave of neoconservatives who would adopt the term. People like Irving Kristol and Norman Podoritz and Daniel Bell maybe Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and so on. And they were very preoccupied, as you put it, with race and kind of domestic policy. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have really associated them. This is one difference. We wouldn't have associated the first neoconservatives really with a distinctive foreign policy position. Uh, the public interest, the journal that Irving Crystal founded, was basically devoted to social science about urban problems and domestic policy.
0: Yeah. But by 2003, we thought neoconservative, we thought about Paul Wolfowitz in the Iraq War.
2: <laughs> right. So what uh, this book, the Neoconservatism, the biography of a movement does so well, is basically chart the three generations of neoconservatives. The first were these mostly social scientists who were New York intellectuals, many of them Jewish. Who again took on like urban problems, applied social science to domestic political problems, and then the second generation were the kind of Scoop Jackson Democrats, you know, Committee on the Present Danger. They they wanted the Democratic Party to kind of uh, return to a more muscular foreign policy. They saw, say, with the the turn the Democrats made in the early '70s, they thought they were bec- becoming too weak on communism, and they thought the kind of the new left movements that changed kind of the character. Of the Democratic Party, the way they chose their nominees and so on, that, that they were too weak on communism. So they wanted like Democrats to be more like Scoop Jackson. And then really, the third generation is the people like William Kristol and Paul Wolfowitz and the people we associate with George W. Bush's foreign policy. So there's a difference in timing. And there's a difference, especially, again, with the first neoconservatives versus these earlier converts. Uh, the, the earlier converts were driven by again foreign policy in the Soviet Union and the, really the first generation of neocons were not they were driven much more by a reaction to civil rights movement the new left and domestic policy problems
1: yeah, and I'll just say, because it's always my my, uh, my remit on the podcast to bring up the Jews. It, well, if, if people want to hear a, a really uh, in-depth conversation with uh, about um, sort of the Jewish character of the early neoconservatives and what that has to do with sort of the history of the Jews in America, you should listen to our episode with Dave Kleon that's called What Happened to Norman, um, where we read Norman Podoritz's... I will link
0: to it in the show notes.
1: Great. We, list, we, we read Norman Podoritz's... Um, fascinating memoir making it. But uh, I think it it might already be obvious to the listeners. But one of the things that happens here is that the story of the first generation of neoconservatives is partially a story about Jews becoming white and becoming conservative um, and becoming, and and in particular, urban Jews who develop animosities towards black people, people who were from sort of comparable working class social milieus to them. um, But a lot of sort of just racial animus that is developed as Jews are just beginning to be welcomed into the kind of the uh, position, the, the the sort of world of whiteness. Anyway, you
0: can listen to our podcast to get more of that. You mentioned Burnham earlier in his book, The Managerial Revolution. He has goes on to have a huge influence on Samuel Francis, this Washington Times opinion writer and open white supremacist who takes... Burnham's work, and turned it into a revolutionary program that looked to to George Wallace rather than to Goldwater for inspiration, and who was very, very close to Pat Buchanan when he was running for president quite successfully, not in terms of winning, but with quite a number of votes. He won New Hampshire. Yeah. Pat Buchanan has just really shockingly strong showings in both 92 and 96, and Buchanan's paleoconservative politics certainly seemed to be the most prescient about trumpism who are and were the paleos where did they come from and to what extent were were they just forerunners of trumpism and to what extent can we see them as causal of trumpism in some way
2: well that's a good question dan and you know this is where Uh, What we were just discussing about fusionism, the distinctions, say, between anti-communist libertarians, more traditionalists, they don't exactly map on to the neocon-paleocon divide. Although I I think it's fair to say that a lot of people who think of their conservatism more in the vein of Russell Kirk, a more Burkean in conservatism, traditionalism, they probably side uh, with the paleocons more. And in some ways, it's a term, I think, that comes into being in reaction to the entry of neoconservatives into the conservative movement. And there are people who thought the neocons, and again, there is a, as we were kind of gesturing at, some, probably some anti-Semitism here in the case of Buchanan, that's, you don't really have to
0: guess that much.
2: But, you know, is America a universalistic, multicultural country? And capital
0: L liberal, capital L liberal country.
2: Yeah, capital L liberal in kind of the most robust sense of that term. Or was it more rooted in very particular ethnicities, cultures, and traditions. And the paleocons said the latter, you know, that this was a place rooted in kind of white Anglo-Protestant culture. And that's, it needed to sustain that in order to, you know, remain a recognizable country. Now, I would say uh, that one way of thinking about paleoconservatism, it's, it's Pat Buchanan, as you mentioned, Sam Francis, Paul Gottfried, probably people like Joe Sobrin probably people like Peter Brimelow, as you mentioned earlier, you know, immigration is a huge issue for them, as you might guess by what I just said. But, you know, when you take a step back, there's a few kind of key things, I think, to keep in mind. And one of which is someone like Francis's, Sam Francis's analysis was rooted in a book called The Middle American Revolution. And it was kind of getting at the phenomenon of what we might call Reagan Democrats, white, blue collar workers, people from the Midwest who kind of turned away from the Democratic Party and became more Republican and were kind of looking for conservative alternatives. And so in the sense of whether paleoconservatism is like a precursor or how you might think about it in relation to Trump, I think there's two things going on. One day, the, the paleoconservative were identifying the right base for a popular political movement on the right, that they saw opportunities there. Where the people were not necessarily wedded to libertarian economics or Reaganomics or uh, you know the traditional GOP, GOP platform on on economics, but they were moved very much by immigration and demographics. You know, again, because they weren't sold on Reaganomics, they were aware of their own pre- economic precariousness in some ways. I think you see that they give you a taste for the instability of fusionism, meaning. Not just there was a kind of theoretical incoherence between defending capitalism the way it was in the right, defense of traditional virtues, traditional morality, traditional religious communities, so on and so forth. But that actually over time, the, the conservative agenda, as it was implemented by Reagan, it took a toll on conservative voters. And that kind of in that kind of tension, the fact that what the Republican Party was selling was actually not in the material interests of a lot of its voters. Um, I think Paleocon's picked up on that early. I mean, Pat Buchanan railed against NAFTA, not just immigration and and the first Gulf War and the first Gulf War, but you know it, the outsourcing jobs and kind of enriching foreign countries at. The expense of American workers, and that kind of taps into a xenophobic vein too right it 's still a kind of fear of foreigners that
0: Americans are being ripped off at the expense of uh, people in different countries, uh, but uh, it 's two sides of a globalist coin, a system run by cosmopolitan elites whose allegiance is not to the people of the united states y-
2: yes, and I, I think in you know one way of understanding trumpism uh, in terms of the history we 've been sketching is that eventually that instability of the fusionist synthesis broke apart and the economic part of it, you know, played a distinctive role in that.
1: Yeah. And the inextricable um, status, anxiety, racial politics of, that is inter, as we would all agree, uh, intertwined with uh, the economic uh, element. It's also useful to point out about the Paleocons that they always had a s- more of the sort of southern uh, Confederate nostalgic impulse, which was sort of more muted amongst certainly amongst the neocons who were Jewish intellectuals from New York City, even among even among paleocons who weren't from the South. Um, there was more. Does Pat Buchanan have a fake southern
0: accent? He's from DC. I, I'm sure he plays it up. Do you know, Matt? DC. I'm from DC. People, white people from DC don't have well. Real that
2: said, accents. you know, Buchanan's been in DC so long. When he first arrived, it might have been kind of still a semi-southern city, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. That's well, fair. Well, think about how long be, Bernie's be been
1: in Vermont, Pat. and he still sounds like he's uh, <laughs> from yeah. Manhattan Beach.
0: Okay. Well, I, I was going to say, like, you know, so Sam Francis is so influenced by, by Burnham, whose managerial revolution, as you mentioned earlier, warns that this kind of administrative straight state run by technocrats was the inevitable condition of modern existence, from Nazi Germany to so- Stalinist Soviet Russia to New Deal America. How does this become so formative, so important, so foundational for Sam Francis? And there are all kinds of conservative issues with what we've come to know as the administrative state, but what what's the paleo's problem with with that state? It's not entirely clear
1: why the managerial society should be so should generate so much antipathy from his concept of the sort of great american middle. He he says something like the resistance to the cosmopolitan elite would be driven by quote immutable elements of human nature that, quote, necess- necessitate attachment to the concrete and historical roots of moral values and meaning. And so you hear in that sort of this concept of, you know, the fear of an encroaching uh, managerial elite that doesn't have any attachment to sort of traditional moral values and blah, blah, blah. It's similar to something we hear all the time about how the sort of cosmopolitan elite represents this coalition of the... the bottom and the top of society, you know, the migrants... Against the middle. Against the middle, yeah. The, the sort of migrants and the, the urban poor and uh, elites uh, in coalition sort of uh, undermining the material and social and racial lives and racial well yes and, and racial lives of the of the great middle you know it was actually funny like when people were so upset at uh, bruce springsteen for that jeep commercial at first i was like i don't care but then i actually watched it and it it has a lot of resonances with this idea of the great american middle as being besieged on all sides from bottom and top i love bruce springsteen though so he can do no wrong but as um Tim Shank uh, wrote a good piece about uh francis 's and the paleocon 's influence on Trumpism and sort of trumpist intellectuals right right before the election in two thousand and sixteen and he pointed to comments that Francis made when he was working on his big magnum opus about these questions. Um, and he made these comments, um, you know, to an explicitly white nationalist audience where he said, quote, what we as whites must is reassert our identity and our solidarity. And we must do so in explicitly racial terms through the articulation of a racial consciousness as whites. <laughs> <laughs> and this was so, at like an American
0: you know, Renaissance conference or something.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, Francis is sort of giving up the game, right? And that's kind of why Francis is such a problem for conservatives, many conservatives. Now, of course, he's being embraced again. Uh, But it was at the time because he was giving up the game and suggesting that the problem with the managerial revolution is that it jeopardized some kind of racial hierarchy. And what's the relationship between white nationalism and social conservatism? I think a question that we often get on the podcast, and I'm sure you've talked about a lot on this podcast, is, is the conservative movement just white supremacy all the way down? right? We're going to be talking about this for hours. But should we just say, well, it's a white supremacist movement in a country with with a white racial order, and that's it? I think the answer is no, if what you mean is, uh, has self-conscious white nationalism been the main motivating impulse, conscious motivating impulse of the conservative movement for most of its existence? I don't think that's true. I think that, as we've acknowledged, it's a more important element than was than, than, than was acknowledged for most of the 20th century. But if you ask the question in a different way, which is, like, how is whiteness lived in America? I think the answer is it's lived through the formation of social bonds, in the, in precisely the social bonds that are prized by social conservatives. Segregated, segregated religi- religious worship, suburbs, um, racially separate, and patriarchal family life. And so there are many ways in which the preoccupations of social conservatives and the preoccupation of, of white racialists are one in the same. And you could even take it further to talk about material reality, right? Like, how are the material privileges of whiteness preserved? Well, in part, in significant part, they're preserved by generating these rich and politically efficacious social bonds among white people and white families, which are sufficient to maintain some kind of electoral advantage. Even now, as they have a growing numerical deficit, right? And and through the undiminished transfer of generational wealth <laughs> among white families. So the white family, the white church, the sort of social bonds that constitute traditionalist conservatism are inextricably linked to the maintenance of a white racial order, even though the people who are attracted to social conservatives conservatism are not always and in every case themselves white supremacists or even preoccupied with their own whiteness.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you think about Bill Buckley's statement in the editorial, founding editorial of National Review, the famous line about standing athwart history yelling stop. Well, if you do that in the United States in the 1950s and 60s, that like inevitably, you know, you you can't uh, avoid that running up against white supremacy and Jim Crow and the kind of hierarchies, racial hierarchies at the time, right? You just can't. One thing that Sam Francis took from Burnham was a very cold-eyed analysis of power. And you can look at the people Burnham's drawing on some Italian thinkers we actually talked about in, I think, our second episode, Sam, on the way conservatives argue. But The idea that there are just like these brute power realities and you can dress them up in kind of morality if you want. But I think one way of understanding Francis and his relationship to Burnham is kind of taking some of Burnham's insights and saying, well, if we're going to talk about interests and we're going to talk about power and we're going to talk about the constituencies and the elites that serve them, why can't white people have their own interests? Right. If it's just all amoral power politics and you just render everything in terms of interests, I think that's part of how Francis
0: gets to his position. There's something about these sorts of corners of the intellectual right, those that have embraced Trump that speak more forthrightly than one is accustomed to hearing conservatives speak. Preparing for the show, I was paging through Chronicles, one of the, is it fair to say, too big paleocon? magazines that yes
2: it's a major paleocon organ yes that yes. in the american conservative
0: right. um and there was an essay chiding conservatives for adopting martin luther king as one of their own saying no he was a leftist you know not on our side but it was just, it was it was a sort of honesty about the brutal pol- power politics that are i guess about the Schmidtian reality of politics that And I know this is something you both are very interested in, that both liberals and conservatives are often caught within that kind of obfuscate the actual interests at play. And when you hear the right actually say what this is about is ensuring and defending hierarchy and people like Martin Luther King who oppose that are enemies, there's something just more honest about it maybe? Well, and Francis is just a problem because Francis is brilliant. Sam
1: Francis is a, is a brilliant thinker and writer who comes to the conclusion that the politically efficacious, uh, but to him morally important conclusion um, and direction that, that conservative movement has to go is white nationalism. And he has no, he has no question about it. Right. So somebody who has studied the right, studied the social formations, uh, the social forces in American life that constitute conservatism, you know, both as an electoral force and as a and as a sort of mass movement force. He comes to the conclusion, unadulterated, certain that (laughs) we we ought to be white nationalists.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's I I mean, Sam, as you pointed out a a few moments ago, uh, what Sam Francis did was say the quiet part out loud. To use a line that maybe gets overused these days. Um, but you can understand why Trump might draw so much enthusiasm, because if you posit that Francis was right about the underlying social realities, and for decades, conservatives spoke in a kind of, uh, they used a language that, that tried to paper over that reality, right? They didn't talk in explicitly racial terms all the time, but they talked about welfare a certain way. They talked about
0: welfare queens. Or even defended imperialism in liberal multicultural terms which Bush really did right. for the war on terror. Right. Right. We got to we got to save the Muslim world. Right. But
2: so you know, if you if that's how you've been if Francis is right and that's how that base has been spoken to all along and then suddenly Trump comes along and just gives them the red meat they want. Well, you're going to see that kind of almost deranged allegiance and love for someone like Trump. Like it's it's almost like running a a test to see if Francis was right or not. And the test probably shows that he was.
1: People like uh, Limbaugh, when uh, Trump Trump was, I think it was when he was running, read Francis over the air, right o- over his on his on his radio show, and sort of said, "Doesn't that sound exactly like what we're trying to do here with Trump?" That was, um, you know, I'm disagreeing with
0: Matt. Well, another group of Trumpian intellectuals, a group that had built alliances with, with paleo-conservatives are the anarcho-capitalists or, or paleo-libertarians, which is this really bizarre branch of avowedly racist neoliberalism founded, I think I mentioned earlier, by Murray Rothbard and led since Rothbard's death by his disciple Hans Hermann Huppe. And I did not know a thing about them until Quinn Slobodian wrote this essay on them recently, and he wrote, quote, many observers have described the alt-right and right-wing populism more generally." as a backlash against the excesses of neoliberalism, but an important current of the alt-right was born within and not against the neoliberal movement. What influence do we see today of the paleo-libertarians, and how does that compare to what we've been discussing in terms of the incredible prescience of the paleocons? Well, you know, it's interesting. One thing to say is that you can, it's very
2: easy to understand how a critique of state intervention could apply both to economics and to, say, you know, federal efforts to desegregate schools. So like in the, the libertarian aspect of paleo-libertarianism, you, know, you can see it obviously in their economic program, but the paleo part <laughs> means they're also willing to abide the kind of inherited hierarchies and resist state intervention to reduce them. And uh, like the when you're talking about paleo uh, libertarians, it's striking how many of them I think like the headquarters for this this kind of group of people.
0: The, me, the yeah, the, the Mises, the Mises, Mises Institute.
2: Institute. That's at, uh, in Auburn, right? It's in Alabama. Yep. Uh, which is in no Alabama. accident. And you see that people like Ron Paul, who married libertarianism with a lot of uh, white supremacy, like that's the mix there. And it's also striking. Uh, one of their noires is Lincoln, right? And so you can see the critique of Lincoln would be, again, both that he represents a certain turn in American politics towards the federal government, when the federal government like, clearly imposed its will on the states. We fought a civil war to kind of determine some of those questions of the relationship between federal power and state power. And you know they fear that state for both economic and, again, racial reasons. Uh, that's, that's my kind of gloss on the paleo-libertarians, like how that mix comes together. And I would just make two more points, one of which is the important thing to note maybe in this conversation is that these were not people represented, uh, represented in the pages of National Review. I mean, some of them might have written early on for the magazine. It's not like they never appeared in its pages. But as something like paleo-libertarianism kind of comes into its own more, it's really a distinct strand. So the, the idea that you can tell the full story of the right by paying attention to the debates about fusionism in the pages of National Review, this is a really good example of something happening off screen or off page, so to speak, but really capturing currents that were actually at work in American politics and society.
0: That maybe go a lot farther in terms of explaining the reactionary politics of 4chan or 8kun than the National Reviews, the history of the National Review does. Next up in terms of conservative intellectual strands, currents that have embraced Trump, which I learned about from for the very first time from your podcast, the West Coast Straussians. Who was Leo Strauss? Who are the West Coast Straussians and why have they become such ardent Trumpers? I mean, Leo Strauss, we probably don't need to explore his uh,
2: life and career too much, but he was a Jewish-German emigre to the United States who was a really remarkable political philosopher. And because of those experiences of being a Jew who fled Nazi Germany, you can see in his work, there's a concern for what went wrong in modern life that might have led to these crimes. And... He was someone who valued the wisdom of the ancients and the belief in natural right, like a kind of against historicism and against relativism. And he, when he came to the United States, he taught at the New School for a while. It's where he taught Harry Jaffa, who's kind of the founder of West Coast Straussianism. He taught it for many years at Claremont Institute, but then Leo Strauss moved to uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, he there's kind of a school of political philosophy called Straussianism, and it and a lot of neoconservatives were in that Straussian orbit in some way. And one branch of them, the West Coast Straussians, kind of tried to apply Strauss's teaching to American politics, kind of viewed American politics as the stage on which some of these grand debates throughout the history of political philosophy kind of played themselves out. And it, I mentioned Harry Jaffa, Leo Strauss' student, who, again, is kind of the founder of West Coast Straussianism. His famous book, um, Crisis of the House Divided, which is an interpretation of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, it's a defense of Lincoln, which is interesting just in terms of the history of conservatism. But it also almost treats the Lincoln-Douglas debates of a reprise of, say, Socrates and Thrasymachus in Plato's dialogues, right? Like, does might make right? Uh, Douglas, Stephen Douglas saying, vote it up or vote it down, right? The majority, is there a principle that transcends majority rule or is it just the mightier faction wins? Or is there a moral principle that actually, you know, determines how you should think about these issues? And Lincoln said... So Jaffa gleans an anti-democratic argument from Lincoln? um, It's more that Lincoln defended the, the prerequisites for democracy, meaning could you vote yourself out of democracy in a way, right? Could you vote slavery into effect, which undermines the very foundations of self-government, which is consent of the governed. So my point is just that that style of thinking, that you could almost replay Thrasymachus and Socrates on the stage of American politics, was very Straussian. And the episode we did on the West Coast Straussians was just an explanation of their role in producing the 1776 report that Trump, the Trump administration released on his like next to last day in office, and why they were so Trumpy. And it has a lot to do with their view of the American founding, and then how they think America has to be defended, how its constitutional system has to be defended. But they were an extremely Trumpy group. They're associated with the Claremont Review of Books, which published the Flight 93 election, that famous document. Uh, Again, many of them were on the roster of those who produced the 1776 report, and they've just been some of Trump's most steadfast uh, supporters, kind of on the intellectual right. And we can say more about all that, but I don't want to talk too long before maybe letting Sam chime in here.
1: The West Coast Straussians uh, tended to have, as Matt alluded to, like they mix it up with politics, you know, party politics more and always kind of had more sympathy for the populist elements in the Republican base. And so it's true that when Trump came along, they were among the first intellectuals to, say, try to build a kind of uh, coherent intellectual scaffolding around what Trumpism ought to be. Um, And the first iteration of that was the— The Journal
0: of American Greatness.
1: Yes, the Journal of American Greatness, which was written under pseudonyms, but uh, by many people associated with Claremont and West Coast Straussianism. And it was this sort of, it, it, it's similar to what Matt's describing. It was it was playful. It was erudite. It was linking uh, debates about Trump and the Republican Party to ancient philosophy and uh, debates about the founding.
0: Here's a follow up. Uh, you mentioned that they were so interested in sort of the populist end of conservative politics. But at first blush, Straussians are not obvious populists because Straussians believe that the truth that philosophy teaches about the world is so fundamentally and dangerously nihilistic that there's no firm grounding for morality that government must protect the populace from that esoteric knowledge. It's an incredibly elitist philosophy. So how does that square with Trumpian right-wing populism? Is what they like about Trump the way he creates a sort of bizarre sideshow that precisely that mystifies reality for the masses and thus protects them from this forbidden fruit? Well, one thing to say in response to that,
2: Dan, is that I think it's fair to call the West Coast Straussians the least esoteric of the bunch, Um, meaning it's very hard to tell which one of them might secretly believe that you know, the truth about the world is nihilistic, then the people need to be protected from that versus those who would really and truly have bought into a story of, you know, America's unique virtue and greatness. Then what makes them Straussians? Um, yeah. It ha- I think it has a lot to do with the, the kind of categories of thought they use, meaning they still use the Straussian dichotomy between, say, natural right and history, right? Between things grounded in natural rights uh, that are knowable by human reason, like things in the structure of reality about right and wrong, about, about rights, about how governments might work versus, you know, again, more relativistic or, or even nihilistic strains of thinking they associate with progressivism. So they kind of use the Straussian categories. Uh, that's one reason they're Straussian. And they kind of just take that app- philosophical apparatus and apply it to America. And I, again, it's really unclear to me
1: which ones of them truly believe it and which ones might not. And the West Coast Straussians, they, they believe that the American founding represents at least a, um, a sufficient—what is it? It's low and— Well, Leo Strauss what, the called line um, modern
2: political thought th- that it was founded on kind of low but solid principles, meaning, <laughs> you know, if you go to like Hobbes and Locke, the idea of, okay, we should form a society because—not as the classics or the ancients might have, searching for the, the best regime— you know, the most virtuous and, and kind of philosophically perfect regime, but the regime founded in, okay, we're going to form a society so that we don't kill each other, right? We can, you know, kind of commodious living, as Locke put it. Uh, so that low but solid foundation of early modern political thought, it's, it's not the best regime, but in the United States, they believe that it's good enough uh, to be worth defending.
1: And the East Coast Straussians, especially people like Alan Bloom, ultimately have some much more suspicions about whether the American project can really fulfill uh, the demands of sort of ancient philosophy, whereas the West Coast Straussians seem to sort of say, this is, this, is, this is pretty good, right? And in particular, I think it's really good insofar as the people, you know, regardless of how much you trust them, are, very, are fiercely patriotic and invested in a certain set of, you know, American myths about uh, what holds the country together.
0: I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the
2: show at patreon.com slash the dig.
0: The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form, serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers, supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. So the West Coast Straussians have, we mentioned James Burnham's thing with the administrative state, which went on to influence Sam Francis, but the West Coast Straussians are also obsessed with the administrative state and have an obsession with the progressive era as the moment when things went fundamentally wrong in the United States. What is up with the West Coast Straussians' obsession with the progressive era, how does that inform their commitment to Trumpism? And how does that compare to other conservative intellectual currents take on when America went bad?
2: Well it's an interesting question because you know when you look back at the the course of West Coast Straussian's influence on conservative politics, I mean the founder Harry Jaffa who I mentioned previously, he wrote the famous line, we mentioned this in our our episode about the West Coast Straussians, Goldwater's famous line at his 1964 Republican Convention speech about uh, moderation in the pursuit of virtue be no—that extremism in, pers- in pursuit of liberty was no vice, and moderation in pursuit of virtue was, you know, itself not to be recommended. That famous line he wrote that. So the, the West Coast Straussians have always been more kind of involved, I think, in day-to-day conservative politics, uh, electoral politics. But the story they tell about progressivism really took off around the time of Obama's election. A guy like Ronald Procedo, who is a West Coast Straussian, um, wrote a book on Woodrow Wilson and progressivism in the administrative state. And he was going on Glenn Beck, for example. Uh, And I think what you see, there's like a kind of practical critique and a moral critique, and they link it through progressivism, which is it's an abandonment of the original American scheme of self-government because it's really government by the managerial state, right? In the bureaucratic state. And so it's self-government gets replaced by management, by elite experts. And then those elite experts are motivated by a rejection of natural rights, certain moral principles in favor of historicism and relativism and ultimately nihilism. So you end up having people kind of wielding power using the power of the state four ends that are supposedly repugnant to
1: both the founding principles and the kind of genius of the american people and they they point to the woodrow wilson presidency as a profound turning point um at which the sort of philosophy of 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 pragmatism and managerialism and the abandonment of the genius of the founding was was uh, found its apotheosis and and we've been in the in the form of the of the 20th century democratic party We've been on the wrong path ever since, and you can and you can see too how uh, that relates to some of the sympathy with uh, America First uh, foreign policy. Woodrow is seen. Woodrow Wilson is seen as a sort of president who used sort of wartime to uh, implement this illiberal anti um, multilateralist world order.
0: Yeah, yeah, and um, at home, which at, is actually a self-serving liberal narrative about what. Woodrow Wilson was doing when, in fact, like the League of Nations mandate system was just a formalization of the colonial powers dominion over the carved up Ottoman Empire and well, the spoils of World War One.
1: Yes. No, I mean, at some point during this conversation, we should talk about like liberalism because a lot of the times conservatives are attacking a version of liberalism that doesn't exist, um, just as uh, liberals, you know, American liberals, um, are defending a version of liberalism that doesn't exist.
2: Yeah. And, and in the case of Wilson, you have to remember, he was a trained political scientist, right? Uh, he was president of Princeton University and wrote a book called Congressional Government, which I'm not an expert on. But my understanding is that it was kind of a critique of the American system and kind of wished it was more like the British system, uh, which is to say, easier for government to do things which in the conservative mind means easier for the government to trample your rights right so so they can draw on wilson's own texts and thinking say this is someone who was hostile to the american system of government
1: yeah And and there's a version of this that's just very um stupid and gotcha which is the idea that like because the progressive era is called the progressive era, and now today progressives call themselves (laughs) progressives, that therefore, and that these were Democrats, you know, um, but that because in the progressive era, along with sort of the rise of philosophical pragmatism, sort of like unmooring of, of moral virtuous principle from political reason, that there was all this really shitty race science and eugenics. eugenics and all this stuff and so sterilization yeah exactly and that they say well the democrats and progressives uh their inheritance is Is this and uh, which
0: is just a Dinesh D'Souza move of going into the secret vault and being like, Oh my god, the Democrats were segregationists. (laughs) They they like, yeah, they were members of the KKK. Can you believe it? But yeah, I mean, one of the things that we tried
1: to get in on our podcast about them in relation to Trump and the 1776 report was that a lot of this uh, relies on the idea that contemporary progressivism and contemporary democratic politics are a direct inheritance of that era. That if you were to press a Democrat about, well, well, don't you love Woodrow Wilson? They would all say, yeah, of course I love Woodrow Wilson. He was a Democrat. But like, this is not true. <laughs> Especially among among the people that they hate the most, which is sort of leftists who are sympathetic to sort of identity politics and sort of to the to the black liberation movements of various kinds, who they hate the most, like none of those people would say, oh, yes,
0: we love Woodrow Wilson. And who would very much oppose the politics of immigration restriction and xenophobia that characterized the era. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
2: If you read the 1776 report, it is striking how the main enemy is identity politics. I think really what they do is they conceive of that as a form of group rights as opposed to the individual natural rights of the founding but it's again uh, the way they talk about say the civil rights movement which they understand as briefly being good like the most watered down version of Martin Luther King that was good right the martin luther king of judge not by the content of your skin or color of your skin but the content of your heart that kind of that kind of version of mlk in the popular imagination that was the brief moment when the civil rights movement was good but then it quickly descended into kind of like black radical politics and black nationalism and uh, a form of group identity politics, which is the real enemy of the 1776 report. So in terms of their- And finally finally cancel culture. Yes. So in terms of their support for Trump, I mean, I think they viewed him as like one part wrecking ball against the administrative state, one part anti-identity politics and anti-immigration, which they're very much for. And, you know, maybe the third part is just, you know, He's not a philosopher himself, but you know the statesman in the Straussian conception should listen to the philosopher who's whispering in his ear. <laughs> um, and so they viewed Trump in some part as a vehicle for their project, and they weren't wrong because he appointed an entire commission to write a report that, again, is pretty undiluted West Coast Straussianism.
0: Let's move on to national conservatism, which includes some probably better known figures than anyone else who we've been discussing so far in terms of contemporary conservative politics? Who are they? When did the term come about? And what do they want?
2: The national conservatism uh, movement, if you want to call it that, it really, their coming out party was the conference they had in the summer of 2019. And the people involved were people like R.R. Reno, the editor of First Things, Yoram Hazoni, uh, uh, an Israeli-American political theorist. Uh, Josh Hawley spoke at that convention. So did Tucker Carlson, Patrick Deneen, who in some ways fits uneasily into that in that label, uh, also spoke at it, but it had been building for a while. I mean, you saw kind of after Trump was a uh, really during the time Trump was running and then after he was elected, the right try to figure out what to do with him, so it led to you know the early national review to kind of never trump issue, but then some of the people who actually wrote for that warmed up to Trump, and then one reason we talked so much about fusionism was. Uh, in First Things, there was an open letter signed by Saurabh Amari, among others, and it was saying that it was called Against the Dead Consensus. And it was saying basically that the tension we identified in fusionism, meaning the fact that unrestrained capitalism does not in fact serve the ends of moral traditionalism and religious community, they recognized that. And they viewed Trump's economic heterodoxy as an opportunity to say it's about time the social conservatives really got paid back for, all, for carrying water for the right all these years, and the Republican Party specifically. And so national conservatism is basically a movement of, of intellectuals on the right, some of which had been you know, very much a part of the mainstream conservative uh, magazines and publications and think tank world, uh, kind of adapting to Trump and saying, he's right that we should restrict immigration. And that our foreign policy should not be based on adventurism abroad and wars abroad, and that our uh, economics should be geared more towards, well, an America first approach that uh, most of all supports the kind of nuclear family the right idea- idealizes. And that this conference just, it was a, c- a few days of speeches and lectures and panels that elaborated that understanding of what conservatism should be
0: and so is national conservatism the same philosophy as that expressed in this against the dead against the dead consensus manifesto published in first things is it most distinguishing feature this organized conservative intellectual rejection of liberalism well in
2: in part there's a lot of overlap with that rejection of liberalism meaning the national conservatives they didn't they didn't all call themselves post liberals which is another kind of element on the right, because post-liberalism, that encompasses everything from these national conservatives to Catholic integralists, people like Adrian Vermeule, and to some extent, um, Saurabh Amari, right, who, who want a more moralized politics where they, the, the kind of lingering libertarian fear of the state, they say, no, you want to actually capture the state. Vermeule has been explicit about this. He wrote an essay called Integration from Within in American Affairs, where it's basically like, no, you need right-wing figures to staff the government to hold key positions, and then you can implement, through the administrative state, this kind of Catholic ideal uh, vision of how the country should be governed. So you have the National Conservatives, the Catholic Integralists, people like Patrick Deneen, who don't necessarily fit comfortably in any... In either of those who are maybe a little more localist, but um, so the criticism of liberalism, it's not quite as front-loaded I think among the national conservatives. Though it depends which one, but it's it's in the mix of all these kind of post-liberal re, uh,
0: responses and adaptations to Trump on the right. So what's the significance of conservatives coming together now to explicitly reject liberalism? And then I think you should like. And then what is? What is liberalism? Because we have this unfortunate terminology in the U.S. where liberal means to the left of center. So what are they rejecting? To what degree have conservatives, have conservative intellectuals historically fallen within liberalism? Uh, I think
2: one thing to say is that if you view conservative intellectual efforts as being very pragmatic and often kind of responding to popular energies rather than leading them, uh, you can say that conservatives were fine with liberalism as long as it seemed like it would still work for them, meaning the basic framework of American liberal democracy. You know, it's uh, Damon Linker wrote a column for The Week that we identified in uh, as kind of an important statement in our episode on the national conservatism, uh, or it's called, sorry, the, on the illiberal right, an episode called The Rise of the Illiberal Right. And, you know, it used to be that the the religious right spoke of themselves as a moral majority, and when First Things wrote, uh, uh, published a famous symposium in the 90s, critiquing judicial overreach, it was saying that, that elite jurists were thwarting the will of the kind of virtuous religious American majority on cases like abortion and LGBT rights and so on. But now you see they're kind of really, they don't really speak that same way. They don't argue the same way. And so the argument that Sam and I made in our episode on the liberal right is just that the rejection of liberalism which a lot of people on the left have criticisms of when the right criticizes it they kind of want to go behind liberalism right they're uncomfortable with equality that you know that pro- that proposition of liberalism that it seems like by rejecting liberalism they're giving themselves permission to go along with the kind of anti-democratic illiberal elements on the right now that we saw Trump when he was stoking the stop the steal nonsense the ends justify the means for them Uh, and when the means seemed workable to winning power in a more straightforwardly democratic way they seemed to go along with liberalism and now they're kind of adapting and the work of right-wing intellectuals especially the national conservatives and the liberal right the integralists and others it seems to be kind of creating the intellectual space to justify
0: that basically authoritarian rule by a minority and so have they all, always been animated by a Schmidtian principle, but only now when the minority basis of their politics is so clear, are they forced to articulate it so I mean, I think clearly? that's probably true. Meaning I don't think
2: Bill Buckley, you know, in the pages of National Review ever gave Schmidt a second thought, <laughs> right? So I, I do think this is an adaptation on the right. We're kind of seeing them respond to the Trump phenomenon and the energies he stokes and and
1: feeds off of. But I think, yeah, I think that as we've sort of suggested earlier on, even in the fusionist consensus, the thing that held it together was a common enemy, right? So the Schmidtian impulse is there already. And I think that looking at the 20th century and the ways that conservatives have approached democratic politics and used the Republican Party to its ends, I think we can see some of a sort of continuity with the thing that Matt is describing, which is that identifying common enemies is just as important as any of the high-minded philosophizing that's being done in the pages of National Review or other small magazines. And that indeed, you know, like Schmidt's critique of liberalism is that, you know, it's a sham, right? Like that uh there is there is no such thing as these sort of neutral grounds in which politics Uh, in a pluralist society, like, get meted out in in, in the form of debate. In fact, it's always about power. It's always about one person, uh, one group succeeding at uh, wielding power over another. And liberalism, you know, basically perpetuates itself by uh, perpetuating this myth of uh, a neutral ground of politics. And I think that the... Brazenness with which uh, conservatives that throughout the 20th century have used like whatever was at hand in order to take power and wield power um, suggests that it's not an entirely new phenomenon.
2: And this is this is where the the glue or the cement of the Cold War really is important because I think to the extent that conservatives styled themselves defenders of liberal democracy and in some ways the full throatedness of their defense of capitalism. You can't separate that from the necessities of the Cold War, right? Like, it, it looked good for the United States to be a defender of liberal democratic capitalism against the godless, atheistic, statist, collectivist Soviet Union, right? So what the Cold War, the dilemmas that posed for conservatives, and some of the rhetorical tracks they took, I think can't be separated from the Cold War.
1: Right. But I mean, it's worth asking, like, why now does it seem that the fusionist consensus or even the feigned fusionist consensus uh, is falling apart? Like, why now do we have the against the dead consensus? And why now do social conservatives, are social conservatives saying we've gotten a raw deal, right? Like, because it's a real phenomenon. Like, I, I think that the critique that the left often has of people like Josh Hawley is, is true, right? Like, he... Purports to be a sort of populist who wants to do some kind of, some kind of leveling or economic redistribution in some way, but doesn't actually back it up with policy, uh, it barely ever. But uh, stated goals of people like Sohrab Amari and other post liberals are some forms of of redistributive economics, some more populism, and toward the end of of restoring some of these social bonds that they. Uh, claim that capitalism, but especially liberalism as the sort of this atomizing force that separates communities and undermines the, the basis for the family and the church and so their conservative social values um, has has generated.
0: Well, it's revealing that Trump could or would not ever put this hair vogue social democracy into practice, even though so many on the left, at least online, were often freaking out about the prospect of that happening instead we got the same old tax cuts for the rich deregulation the trade war with china seemed a bit heterodox at first but now has a lot more bipartisan support so what sort of problems do trump's presidency in person pose for these people who wish to make trumpism into something more coherent this kind of systematic right-wing populist ideology and program what and does that seeming impossibility of separating trump the figure from trumpism as a politics, does that reveal something important about Trumpism?
2: I mean, I think partly what you see is just uh, the fact that the kinds of institutions we've been talking about on the right, from National Review through think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, Cato Institute, so on and so forth, uh, they were all geared towards the fusion synthesis, synthesis, right? And you're not going to change on a dime that was that's why there was so much ambivalence about Trump on the intellectual right at first and why some of the adaptations to it, like the Conference on National Conservatism that we were discussing, happened a few years into his presidency, right? I just think there's a certain inertia at work that the people who have been elected to Congress, who had been in Congress for years, someone like Paul Ryan, right? He was reared on the orthodoxy of fusionism, uh, and it's going to take a while for the Republican Party up and down, you know, not just Trump at the top, but people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, the kind of Trumpists in Congress. It might take a while for that shift to be reflected. So I think part of it is just timing, and with that, there's just a lack of infrastructure around. Trump and Trumpism, if you can
0: use that term. And that's partly... Well, conservative intelligentsia was something developed in these large institutions, lavishly funded by very, very rich people.
2: Yes, yes. So there's a tension between I think the donor class and some of the popular energies. And I also think just that what you're... Part of the way Trump governed... I mean, it reflects his personal disinterest in the details of policy, right? And, you know, (laughs) you can't... That really matters. When a president who ran on a certain platform, if you can call it that, just has no interest in the details of governing, he's not going to fight Republicans in Congress over a tax cut or really push for certain redistributive measures. Uh, That's just not going to happen but it, it it's especially true be, because there's this delay i'm talking about there's not the intellectual infrastructure around say if you look at the the intellectual infrastructure on the right around welfare reform that was you know signed into law by Bill Clinton that was a critique that developed among the first wave of neoconservatives in many ways in the '60s and 70's with Charles Murray in the 80's his book losing Ground you know think tanks like Heritage Foundation, AEI, and Cato it kind of took this this real investment in those ideas and policies to have them pay off politically. It took decades. And I think what you're seeing right now is, and why something like the National Conservatism Conservatism Conference was important, is it's the right beginning to adapt to the realities that Trump exposed and beginning to build the infrastructure so that if someone like Trump is elected again, you will have ready-made policies. You'll have that 1,200-page set of policies that the Heritage Foundation handed Ronald Reagan in 1980, handed to the next Trumpist figure. Uh, that does not exist right now. They're the beginnings of it, something like American Compass or in Cass's kind of more pro-worker, conservative outfit. Um, you can see the beginnings of it, but it's not there yet. And so when Trump came into office, there was no apparatus ready to help put his vision, such as it was, into the Reformicons weren't up to the task. Right? They still there just wasn't <laughs> enough heft and money and scribblers, you know, ready to go on the right to make Trumpism a, a real reality.
1: And I also think it, it especially as the post liberals are represented by the kind of hardcore Catholic integralist right, it's another example of intellectuals with their preoccupations trying to convince themselves, I think, that there's a mass politics for their high-minded preoccupations.
0: I mean— Which in the case of Catholic integralists is insane. I don't know much about them, but how does that work with a religious right in which evangelicals are the larger partner? I I, I don't imagine focus on the family types want to live under papal dominion.
2: I mean, I mean, I mean there's not really a popular base for Catholic integralism. But the strategy that someone like Vermeule has outlined, integration from within, does not depend on it, right? Like working through the executive branch in that fashion is kind of proof in a way that they're admitting this isn't something that really is going to take hold because of popular enthusiasm for it. And I think when it comes to, say, Catholics and evangelicals, I mean, that rapprochement had been you know, decades in the making. And for certain kinds of evangelicals, well, as long as they have the same enemies, as long as you're going to use the state to go after gays and abortion access, they're not going to really object to much practically that a Catholic integralist would want to do, even if they won't sign off on Our Lady of Guadalupe being the patroness of,
0: uh, <laughs> you know, the Greater American <laughs> Empire or something. In terms of what you were saying about the lack of a base, there was this fascinating column from uh, uh, the the weak columnist and against the dead consensus signer, Matthew Walter, and it was picked up by Rod this idea of barstool conservatives as being kind of what the anti-PC masses are really all about. And they share the religious rights animus towards woke culture, but on firmly capital L liberal grounds. They don't want anything to do with Amari's theocracy theocracy. So Dreher sort of laments but accepts, it's a weird column, that there's this culture war happening. It's just not the one that religious conservatives wanted. It's a culture war far more in tune with the one being waged by the intellectual dark web than that being waged by the religious right. I think that's right.
1: I mean, and I think that, like, it also points to the unresolved contradictions within fusionism and within the conservative movement we've been describing, because to, get, to go back to um, Adrian Vermeule, Adrian Vermeule, this prominent integralist law professor at Harvard, wants to use the administrative state to nudge people
0: towards his preferred moral behaviors— Right. He's a behaviorist and a law and economics scholar who's co authored with Cass Sunstein and Richard Post. Exactly. So he's a nudger.
1: He wants to nudge. And <laughs> but, but nudging in pursuit not of ideal economic outcomes, but towards his preferred moral behavior, which is to say Catholic piety. And that that's a huge problem for the libertarian and capital L, as you say, liberal elements that um, are still prominent in the conservative movement. So barstool conservatives don't want to, you know, have an administrative state telling them how to behave, wh- how much they can drink and how much they can fuck, right? Like, <laughs> that's not what Barstool conservative consists of um, hell no, bro. Yeah, hell no, bro. And no. <laughs> I and I think and and there's also a profound contradiction in the hostility to cancel culture. The new, you know, v- vigorous post liberal uh, social conservatives they don't oppose something like cancel culture as such. They want to live in a society where there are social and political forces to correct bad behavior, right? They want drag
0: queen story hour canceled. They
1: want drag stream... Yeah, they they, they want a cancel culture, just not the cancel culture that presides now, right? Like, you know, um, like the, the opposition to cancel culture, whatever you think of it, is expressed in a capital L liberal idiom. Um, and it is better represented by the uh, intellectual dark web and others like that. People like Jordan Peterson. Yeah, and while people like Amari may rail against cancel culture as it exists now he's not in any principled way opposed to something like a culture which sanctions bad beha- bad moral behavior uh, in pursuit of like a a, a, a a different sort of shared virtue shared
0: moral virtue that's really interesting because what is it then about this kind of anti cancel culture the impeachment defense used the term cancel like a mil, you know, constantly it was it was insane. This what is it about anti cancel culture, anti PC politics that is inc- increasingly creating this powerful link between the far right and various fig, various amorphous figures, figures from the center, figures of from the erstwhile disaffected left, all kind of gathering under this anti cancel culture banner. Let me provide
1: one thought that sort of skirts around it, but might help people understand something of it. I think that anti-cancel culture is definitely in principle and in its its idiom, a a defense of liberalism as such. You know, the idea that you uh, ought to be able to say whatever you want, that you shouldn't be sanctioned for uh, wrong think, so to speak. I think that One of the interesting things about all of the debates about liberalism taking place on the right, the center, left, and the left is that nobody acknowledges, uh, aside from the left, um, (laughs) the rest of the political spectrum does not acknowledge the basic constitutive lacunae in liberalism, right? Which is that liberalism has uh, countenanced slavery, imperialism. Colonialism, uh, foundational exclusions, dominations, exploitation, right? Liberalism and, 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 and expropriations. Exactly. And so liberalism itself contains within it and has uh, supported philosophically and uh, paradigmatically all of the worst, you know, offenses against humanity <laughs> of the modern era. Right. And so there's a problem with liberalism, which is not the one that the post-liberal right wants to talk about. And it's not the one that the center-right or center centrist antagonists to cancel culture want to acknowledge either.
0: The pandemic has, of course, exposed both the lethality of Trump's incompetence and also the really obvious need for a powerful administrative state like the one certain countries that were are entering new Cold Wars with. A powerful administrative state in a globally interconnected mass society that's riven by communicable disease. And this reality poses a problem for conservative intelligentsia. And one revealing response came from First Things editor R.R. R. Reno. Oh, God. Don't get me who started. called efforts to control the pandemic, quote, an ill-conceived crusade against the human finitude, and the dolorous reality of death. Wow. How did conservative intelligentsia, its various strands, respond to the pandemic, and what do those responses reveal about the state of conservative thought? Well, I think out of intellectual fairness, it should
2: be stated that the responses from the right in terms of the pandemic have been various, right? Some people, even someone like Rod Dreher, who, uh, his work, I, you know, am deeply hostile to. There were times when he spoke some sense about the pandemic.
0: Not always. Rod rare now, but if you end up needing an exorcist, who are you going to call? <laughs> I know. Well, I know who I'd call as a Roman Catholic, <laughs> uh, and it would probably not be a priest recommended by Rod. Um, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead.
2: <laughs> um, but you know, that's just to say the response has been various. But I think overall, what you saw was that and I've used this formulation before, Sam's probably tired of hearing it, but I do think the pandemic was like this nightmare for right-wing ideology because it involved experts, right? People with real expertise in epidemiology and public health making recommendations and sometimes, you know, informing mandates about how we could go about our lives, which freaks the right out. It showed that the government has to do stuff sometimes, whether it's, right, relief uh, checks, sent to struggling Americans, whether it's, you know, a moratorium on evictions, whether it's, you know, just mobilizing the resources at the state's disposal to produce PPE and vaccines and just, you know, the material things you need to combat a pandemic. Uh, and it exposed the way that, say, having healthcare tied to employment is deranged, right? So, it, like, on all fronts, uh, from expertise to the role of the state, the pandemic was just like everything the right hates and it caused this just deranged like kind of meltdown like response where you had people like Reno you know drunkenly tweeting or I suspect drunkenly tweeting I should include that caveat uh, about how wearing masks showed that you were like a cowed part of the masses who had no will to live For example, or you had Patrick Deneen invoking Christopher Lash and saying, uh, you know, the working class people, they don't fear death. They just want to get back to work. They want to get thrown back into the meat grinder. And it's only a feat intellectuals who don't want to die, who go to the gym and just try to look pretty because they want to have as much sex as possible and live forever. And eat organic Uh, food and don't smoke. Right. Right. Exactly uh shop at whole foods probably uh that kind of thing there's a way in which that you can see them trans trying to transmute the class war into a culture war for one thing that's one thing that represents um but it was just totally
0: kind of unhinged from reality is that how they would have responded 20 years ago or is it not just this new condition of being in a pandemic but where conservatism was at when the pandemic hit Well, I think it has a lot to do with where conservatism was at, because my
2: suspicion is that one thing that was going on is that they saw what Trump was doing, downplaying the severity of the pandemic, remember, you know, some of Trump's early comments, seeing what Trump was doing, and then trying to provide some intellectual backfill for it. That's my sense. I mean, they didn't always directly endorse everything Trump did, but they help create an intellectual climate where suspicion was thrown on the elites making recommendations, the severity of the pandemic and effectiveness of masks was downplayed. And and then, of course, in lieu of actually the government helping people, meaning paying people to stay home or allowing workers to stay home because they're sick, right? Some kind of mandated uh, sick leave uh, for, for workers. Yeah, so rather than backing, say... Pay, uh, you know, paycheck protection, kind of giving workers sick leave so they didn't have to choose between feeding themselves and, and their families and, you know, possibly going into work sick and further spreading the virus. You know, they just acted like the thing was to just oppose the lockdowns, get back to normal or something approaching normal as quickly as possible. And then that would, you know, take care of the problem of, say, whether people could feed themselves
0: or take care of their families. Because the first principle had to be defending whatever Trump did, or at least normalizing it or deflecting from it. Right, yes. And I just want to make one more comment, which really struck
2: me during... Because I was obsessed with these right-wing intellectuals during the pandemic. And you saw the quote from Rusty Reno you uh, cited, which, you know, like, this is all about our obsession (laughs) with avoiding death, right? It's just (laughs) so fucking ridiculous. We haven't sworn enough in this episode. It's so fucking ridiculous. Because really... I mean, it, but it, but it does showcase the conservative genius for kind of wrapping their arguments in narratives that help make sense of it for people. You know, we saw various figures on the right make arguments like, "Well, if you don't open churches, you know, during the worst of the pandemic in a place like New York, you are sh- telling people you are signaling uh, that you actually care more about kind of uh, you know politically correct adherence to." the preferences of managerial elites rather than the human need to worship god right or that this fear of death was a result of you know a centuries long process of secularization and it just took discrete issues like what was the prudent and kind of factually based policy choices in front of us and and turned it into culture war right suddenly it became about not whether like in epidemiological terms churches should open or not but whether or not like modern man <laughs> feared death <Yeah>. too much <laughs> right and so it totally shifts it onto terrain that they are very used to arguing on and and so again and again you saw the right during the pandemic kind of evade i mean the the initial tack they took was to sometimes just directly confront the expert opinion but that quickly blew up in their faces, right? So like someone like Richard Epstein early on in a, uh, a, a post that I know was circulating in the Trump administration said that only 500 people would die. Hoover Institution economy. From economists. the pandemic, yes. Um, and now we're approaching 500,000. Uh, so some of the direct assaults on kind of what experts were telling us, they moved away from that because they were kind of too quickly disproven. But then what they did was, as I'm describing, creating the conditions for people to doubt, what our response should be what any of us could really know and again transmuting it all into these big arguments about the nature of like modern life and whether you sided with the forces of secularization or whether you sided with the elite managerial white collar workers who were lording over their preferences on the working class or something like that that was that those were the moves they made and it was i think they really did an incredible job of just sowing doubt about whether or not it was worth it to follow best practices as far as we understood them at the time.
1: Yeah. I would add two things to that. One is something that we talked about in our year-end review, which got into this stuff. It was called masks off. Ha ha. But uh, we discussed how it was actually really important that the virus got so bad in New York first, because these people don't give a fuck about New York. Um, and in fact, it it the idea that like, oh, um, this is only a problem in these urban places on the East Coast that are um, full of iniquity was, I think, a really important, it facilitated the thing that Matt is describing that allowed conservatives to downplay the virus originally. I mean, you had people writing things uh, about how, you know, whatever was happening in New York wasn't happening everywhere else. So, why should we follow all these laws, which was or all these rules, which was to say, who cares if all these cosmopolitan elite blacks and Jews uh, die in New York um, because? You know that's probably just their own problem. I'm not sure it's not happening here. So whatever. I mean, Matt has has talked about the sort of metaphysics of geography, um, which <laughs> what is really America, which is
0: versus which is not.
1: Right. And and when it comes to the metaphysics of metaphysics of geology geography, I
0: think Sarah Palin got her PhD in that subject. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. uh,
1: uh, New York doesn't count. So who cares that thousands of people are dying there? Dying there. And uh, you know, I mean, I have the amount. I can't even. Th- look at that point squarely in the eyes without uh, bleeding from them, uh, because it makes me so angry on behalf of people that I know who have suffered as a result of this virus. The, The other thing is that it really belied the whole idea that there was this new populist something or rather going on you know, that, 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 uh, that it wasn't all about just backfilling on behalf of Trump. Because what, why, why shouldn't people like Deneen and Reno and Tucker Carlson have been saying, look, this virus is killing poor people and working people way more than it's killing the, <laughs> you could have said, the managerial elite, the PMC, the, the, the ruling class, and, and therefore said, we need to do something about that. You know, like we should organize our policy response to this problem in such a way that its consequences are not only felt by the working class, by the poor, uh, by 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 uh, people who have to, you know, get up every morning and go to work. Um, but they didn't do that.
0: And ironically, if they had and Trump had listened, he might have won re-election. I think so. I know. I know.
2: That's the, if he, Trump had campaigned on $2,000 checks, uh, which he belatedly, after he was defeated, <laughs> you know, signed on on. I really wonder what would have happened. Yeah. Uh, and I should just say, this is a moment, as Sam's getting at, when if you were a kind of nationalist slash populist conservative who was rejecting libertarianism uh, and the kind of free market anti-statism of the kind of libertarian branch of conservatism, this is when you would have expected the rubber to meet the road and them to actually offer substantive alternatives to That that reflected those
0: priorities, right? Helping working people. And yet it's revealing that the rubber never hits the road with all this economic populist language. It never trans and it never becomes economic populist policy. And that is a very revealing fact. Yeah. I mean, when they
2: rail (laughs) against woke capitalism, they're really railing against the woke part. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. Obviously, for sure. Obviously. And the, the other, the other um, problem
1: is also that there, they, the idea of the working class in their minds is such a narrow concept. It's a white patriarch who works with their hands, right? like and so uh the fact that this that 90% of the membership of Unite here the hotel and service sector union uh was unemployed that didn't matter like those people first of all they don't vote for republicans but second of all uh they're not the working class this like you know disproportionately female and brown union the working class is the building trades and not that they really help the building trades all that much either but the the narrow the narrow uh, mythological concept of the white worker patriarch in their conception of who they are serving with their <laughs> so far non-existent po- populist policy. Um, it didn't jibe with what the reality of this pandemic was and who it was actually affecting um, most harshly.
0: The mass protest movement against police violence last summer obviously played a big role in shaping Trump's 2020 campaign. But Was the conservative intelligentsia's response, was there anything new there? Or was it just standard issue law and order politics recycled from the past, from the Nixon administration on?
1: Well, I think my not particularly sophisticated answer is it is just bread and butter conservatism. Like if we have uh, sort of outlined the ways in which the cohering principle of this project that on the page and in their own accounts of their philosophical grounds um, are sort of incoherent, the one thing that holds it all together is a common enemy. And especially when that common enemy is a mass movement that poses some kind of threat to a racial or economic hierarchy. It just doesn't take all that much analysis to understand why they hated BLM.
2: Yeah. And I would just add one thing to that, or two things to it. One is, I do think it was striking how much the economic populism dropped out of Trump's reelection election campaign. Uh, and I think it probably hurt him. We've talked about this before. We did an uh, an interview with uh, Luke Savage at Jacobin right before, really before the election in like mid to late October. And one of the things when I was going back looking at some of the kind of statistics comparing Trump's 2016 victory versus Romney's uh, loss in 2012 was that Trump did better with so-called moderates. like, they weren't all people frothing at the mouth about immigration. I think Trump's heterodoxy and the extent to which he talked about economically heterodox ideas kind of convinced some people he was actually more moderate than he was, which is you know, ridiculous, but that was in the mix. And I would just to kind of maybe tie some things together. I'm really struck by the effort among right-wing intellectuals to tie something like Black Lives Matters to critical race theory, which they then tie back to Marxism. So it kind of all goes back to socialism ultimately, right? Like it's like even Black Lives Matter and the controversies about race and identity that we see now, uh, the right is still trying to kind of tug them back to the familiar
0: ground of opposing socialism. Well, and interestingly enough, and I tweeted about this and tagged both of you the other day, I said there's no one on the right and probably not the center or center left either that has anywhere approaching, has has, has, a, has an analysis, a detailed assessment of the left that. Anywhere approaches the level of analysis that people like you, too, and many others on the left, frankly, bring to the right. When you see the right or the center, frankly, or liberals, even, talking about the left, it's always just a caricature.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's very kind of you to say. Um, And I do think one, if I can comment on that, uh, like when we did our, our recent episode on West Coast Straussianism, I mean Sam and I were obviously critical. But like we did the reading. Yeah. And like I've read Harry Jaffa and I said in that episode that like actually Crisis of the House Divided is a great book on Lincoln. You don't have to be like a West Coast Straussian to appreciate it. And I think Sam and I have a a kind of curiosity about the right. Like that's genuine. Because it's as Sam mentioned, I don't want to steal Sam's lines, but at some point when we were discussing why we are interested in the right. I mean, I'm the ex-conservative, so my interest is easy to understand. But Sam identified that there's something, as a as someone like Sam who was a young leftist, the thrill, the thrill of discovering like Marx, right? And feeling like certain books and ideas opened up possibilities for you personally and politically. That impulse is alive on the right, you know? And, and there are young conservatives, some of whom I still respect, you know, that Sam and I talk to, because we have all kinds of people message us uh <laughs> about the podcast who experienced something similar, right? They read Frank Meyer defending freedom, or they read Buckley saying this or that, or they they um you know, read Whitaker Chambers' uh memoir, Witness, about his turn away from communism and
1: it's or it his was, take down of Ayn Rand.
2: <laughs> Your takedown of Ayn Rand. And it was thrilling. And so I, I think what we try to do on the podcast stems from both the desire to be critical of these ideas, but also to genuinely understand them on their own terms before turning to the criticism. Like I would hope that most people like Yuram Hazoni, uh, one of the conveners of the national conservatism conference in the midst of Patrick Denine, who was my, my old teacher in graduate school kind of lamenting that I was so horribly you know, consigning him to the status of enemy as if, the title of our podcast is not a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, Yoram Mazzoni said, actually, I listened to the podcast and I felt like, sure, I disagree with their criticisms, but they represented our ideas fairly. And we do try to do that. Um, and it's a tough balance to strike sometimes, and sometimes we're more dismissive than others. But I've, I hope that when people listen to Know Your Enemy, they can at least get a
0: genuine sense of what some of the arguments are on the right. So... Trump in 2016 said, I'm a conservative, but at this point, who cares? (laughs) Who does care? Why? And are we still at the beginning of a sort of epical shift in right wing thought whose trajectory we really can't be sure of? My instinct is the latter, Dan. (laughs) Uh, I really
1: don't know. I really don't know where any of this is going. I think it's fascinating, as we've mentioned, that um, the fusionist consensus does seem to be breaking up in a certain way. But then at the same time, I think the idea that these post-liberals are in fact anti-liberal, it's not really true. I mean, they're still liberals in some fundamental ways. Um, They're not uh, at this moment like rejecting... A lot of the sort of basic tenets of liberal philosophy, I think that conservative ideas continue to be uh, an interesting uh, ferment, and that's one of the reasons that we keep doing the podcast and But uh, oftentimes when we're trying to make sense of of where it's going, we do have to look back at these sort of basic material uh, interests that are served by its movement and in, and indeed by the sort of center Of liberal democratic politics too, which is preserving um, a status quo, which is hostile to working people, people of color, um, and so on. And uh, so, you know, listen to our podcast because it's interesting. (laughs) But uh, at the same time, um, predicting where the intellectuals are going to go is very hard to do. Uh, Because as I think it's become clear from this conversation, at times they're hewing to some sort of principle. Other times they're just backfilling in order to serve the interest, uh, the political interest of the demagogue of the day. Um, and, uh, and and looking closely at their ideas is worth it. You know, I often say like, that for me, not having been a conservative, uh, I find all this stuff really interesting. But there, there's a sort of idea sometimes, I think, especially among liberals, maybe on the left, too, that if you Read conservatives that you're going to become infected by the ideas that it's dangerous <laughs> to absorb them, um, but uh, I mean that reflects a sense of tenuousness in your own principles, which I don't really feel at this point in my life. Um, I find that I read conservatives and come away more convinced of the principles of sort of the egalitarian socialism that I uh, that I believe in, and, and I think that uh, that's uh, available to. Uh, your listeners, too. Huh.
2: Well, let me add a more pessimistic note. Please. Uh, By all means. <laughs> uh, I mean, Dan, when you were offering that uh, quote from Trump, there was another one that came to mind, which is at some point in the 2016 primaries, uh, Republican primaries, Trump said that, you, he said, you know, it's called the Republican Party, not the conservative party. <laughs> meaning he was kind of creating some distance there between himself and the conservative movement. But what I see happening on the right, I mean of course there's a sense in which it's unknowable and even the extent to which some of us failed to anticipate Trump, you know, I don't know how all this is going to play out. But I will say this, I'm extremely worried because what I saw happen over the past 4 years, 5 years really if you go back to the camp uh, the primary campaign is conservative intellectuals who were willing to create space for what Trump was doing intellectually. And I kind of got at this a bit earlier, but what I see happening on the right, and it's especially prevalent if you look at what's happening, say, at the level of state parties, what state Republican parties are doing. You know, the it seems to me like the right and the Republican Party more generally really is abandoning any kind of lip service even to majority rule. Like it is a a game of gerrymandering and voter restrictions and possibly even overturning election results. I mean, we so narrowly escaped that outcome in 2020. When you look at the number of state party officials who were Republicans or judges appointed by Republicans, including Trump, who said no, to stealing the election. I would not want to bet on that in the future. And when you see the number of Republicans in Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, who got behind Trump's Stop the Steal movement, it's extremely troubling. And one reason Sam and I have paid attention to the post-liberal right, the nationalists on the right, the integralists, what kind of holds it all together does seem to be a recognition of the fact that they are not riding the energies of a real majority. And you see the right-wing intellectuals just dressing up that fact with, you know, strained defences of the Electoral College or someone like Rusty Reno during the election, uh, uh, the kind of immediate post-election period. He didn't say the election was stolen. He just said, we really need to take Trump's lawsuit seriously and make sure everything actually turned out okay. So you see that kind of not quite going as far as Trump, but providing a certain intellectual infrastructure around what Trump was saying, gave it some credence or just put a little more oxygen into that fire. Uh, So that's my worry. And I, I, I do think because conservative intellectuals if you take seriously the idea that they kind of follow popular energies rather than lead them, the fact that they seem to be coalescing around the justification of authoritarian rule by a minority, whether outright overturning an election or through kind of staying silent about or providing some sort of you know diagonal justification for severe restrictions on the franchise— and the extent to which majorities can actually get their way in any sense in this country, I'm extremely pessimistic. And to me, that's what I will be focusing on uh, in the the months and years ahead, which is just to what extent does the right fully turn against democracy? What are the consequences of that practically? And
1: what are the ideas they'll try to use to make it a little more palatable? I I think Matt's right. And I think what's What's interesting to me uh, and might be interesting a thought that has occurred to your listeners is the Democrats response to this situation, um, and I think that the only path forward um, if you you care about uh, the future of liberal democracy would be for uh, the Democrats to implement these structural reforms to eradicate some of the undemocratic features of our electoral system um, and I think that they are. Most likely to do that insofar as they recognize the critique that Matt just voiced, which is that the Republican Party is potentially uh, irreparably committed to uh, an anti democratic politics of of white minority rule. Um, And I think what's interesting about what's happening right now (laughs) is that you have prominent Democrats, Biden, of course, but also Nancy Pelosi right after the end of the impeachment trial saying, We need a strong Republican Party. You know, we need the old Republican Party. We need the one that isn't controlled by a cult of Trump. Um, And I think that that is exactly the wrong approach. Insofar as the Republican Party, uh, in its sort of never Trump elites, can restore a sense of credibility and reputation to the party uh, and give enough of license to the Democrats not to pursue those structural reforms that would be necessary to prevent this slippery slope to uh, permanent minority rule. That's the problem. That's what we need to avoid. The Democrats need to not lose sight of uh, the continuity between uh, Republicanism and Trumpism, and not embrace this this wish that they clearly have to go back to the normal order of things uh, the normal kind of idea of a, of a of a loyal opposition in the form of the Republicans um, that they might have been able to convince themselves existed in the past
2: yeah i mean it's it's true <laughs> I mean Sam that quote from Pelosi and and others about a strong republican party it's true in one sense in that it's very difficult to have a functioning political system if one side or one party is totally opposed to democracy. Right? (laughs) Right. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a great book um, on conservative parties and kind of the consolidation of democracy in Europe uh, in the 20th century, where it kind of takes conservative uh, parties buying into it for the thing to work. So they're not totally wrong, But despite that, I agree with Sam.
1: I'm not uh, contradicting him here. The problem is a superficial detrumpification that will convince enough uh, liberal Democratic voters and uh, even more likely uh, elected Democrats, uh, that things are back to normal and they're okay again. And so we don't need to do things like get rid of the filibuster, get rid of the Electoral College, democratize the Senate, and so on. And I think that's the worst possible outcome. And it's clearly the one that certain number of Democratic elites and certainly Biden yes. wish yeah. for.
2: <laughs> and I would just go a little bit further and say something like, you know, one reason we spent so much time talking about fusionism at the start of this conversation is not just because it's important, which it is, and it's a key part of the story of the rise of the modern right, especially, you know, as found in the pages of National Review, but the Rick Perlstein article you cited at the very top, Dan, one of the things he pointed out was when you pay attention mostly to the intellectual debates in the pages of high-end magazines like National Review, you just miss so much, Right, I mean that was the title of of Rick's New York Times piece. I thought I understood the American right. You missed
0: the you missed the second Ku Klux Klan of the twenties. You missed yes. McCarthy. You missed Father. Uh, you Coughlin. missed the
2: John Birch. I mean, even the elements that Buckley supposedly expelled, they were still there. They didn't go away. They just maybe went a bit more underground. Those elements, there's no reason to believe that fusionism and National Review represents the real right wing politics in America. I think Trump, the the recalibration, again, someone like Rick Perlstein, who's written now four books on the rise of the right, culminating in Reagan's election, for him to say, I really missed something because I paid too much attention to certain highbrow debates uh, and the story the right told about themselves. I think that those stories are important, but they need to be supplemented by an awareness of the Sam Francis's of the world, by the paleocons, by the Pat Buchanan's, by the John Birch Society, by the moral panics that we saw in the 70s and 80s that we talked about or we've alluded to, right? Like there's really a sense in which your understanding of the right in America is really restricted if you focus on what conservative intellectuals say is the real conservatism.
0: And if you focused on a sanitized version of those intellectuals, because Buckley kind of has it all right there. In his own words, No, totally. Uh, Talk about minority rule. He explicitly
2: said the numerical majorities don't matter in the South, in the context of Jim Crow. So uh, the the issue of continuity and discontinuity between classical conservatism in the pages of National Review and Trumpism, there are discontinuities, especially at the level of rhetoric. But when you look at the underlying social bases and uh, the energies at work in electoral politics, there's a lot of continuity with Trump too. And I've just been really struck by how many conservative intellectuals have debased themselves in the era of Trump and really abandoned in ways
1: that might have been predictable <laughs> in
2: ways that might've been predictable, but to actually see play out in real time, it's quite shocking. Yes. And for me, um, as Sam pointed out, uh, the necessity of just Democrats defending a minimally democratic system is of the utmost importance, because what I see happening on the right right now is incredibly scary, uh, because it amounts to saying, we're going to get
0: our way, and it doesn't matter how we do it. Well, on that cheery note, Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, thank you very much, and thank you in particular for your endurance. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. <laughs> thank you, man. This was so fun. Yeah. There's
2: so much more we could have said.
0: Sam Adler-Bell is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in The Intercept, Commonweal, The New Republic, In These Times, Jacobin, and elsewhere. Matt Sitman is an associate editor of Commonweal magazine and writes regularly for Dissent, where he also sits on the editorial board. They are co-hosts of Know Your Enemy, a podcast about the American right sponsored by Dissent. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, as in private life, one differentiates between what a man thinks and says of himself and what he really is and does, so in historical struggles one must distinguish still more the phrases and fancies of parties from their real organism and their real interests, their conception of themselves from their reality. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. Also, if it's on iTunes or any such platform, please also leave us a nice review. Those help introduce us to new listeners. But what really truly does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.